Tonight we're looking at the cynical and the brilliant. The cynical is the government's headline-grabbing plan to house migrants on barges. The brilliant is the life and work of Paul O'Grady, who has passed away at the age of 67. To take me on that journey, I'm joined by Dahlia. Gabriel, Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I mean, really sad about the news about Paul O'Grady. Like, he was just such a legend and brought so many people so much joy. So I'm really looking forward to, to honouring him in the show today. And, you know, talking about the, the less impressive and less joyful parts of British British news and British culture. Um, but yeah, rest in peace to, to Paul O'Grady. And we'll also be talking about the latest on Jeremy Corbyn and more worrying data from the NHS. First story. The government's latest assault on asylum seekers has been announced. Speaking in the House of Commons, Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick laid out the Home Office's plan to deter small boat crossings. How? By forcing those arriving into, quote, a more rudimentary form of accommodation. I've said before that we have to suffuse our entire system with deterrence, and this must include how we house illegal migrants. So today the government is announcing the first tranche of sites we will set up to provide basic accommodation at scale. The government will use military sites being disposed of in Essex and Lincolnshire, and a separate site in East Sussex. These will be scaled up over the coming months and will collectively provide accommodation to several thousand asylum seekers through repurposed, repurposed barrack blocks and porter cabins. In addition, my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, is showing leadership on this issue by bringing forward proposals to provide accommodation at Catterick Garrison Barracks in his constituency. And we're continuing to explore the possibility of accommodating migrants in vessels as they are in Scotland and in the Netherlands. So we have barracks and porter cabins on repurposed military sites and the possible use of ships. Now, it was quite, um, I think, dishonest for Robert Jenrick there to mention Scotland, because in Scotland they have housed um, asylum seekers on cruise ships, which apparently are pretty decent. Um, to live on, as you can imagine, because you know people do stay for a long time on, on on cruise ships. There was an interview on Radio Four with someone staying in one of those said it was quite pleasant. That is not the Tory plan. The Tory plan is is barges, and if you've seen the pictures of what they're planning, they're a million miles away from cruise ships. And I think this use of terms such as barracks, or I mean, these references to barracks and and, and barges and and military ships, um, I think the Tories are pretty keen to have their chosen sites evoking those war analogies. They want us to think that there is this war on migrants and we have to get the military involved, even if that's just by using barracks or old ships. Um, other than that, other than that sort of indication towards um, what migrants might be housed in the direction of travel, the announcement was pretty low on details. But the Home Office has been briefing more ideas to the right-wing press. The Times reports this. Ministers have procured an accommodation barge capable of holding hundreds of migrants, which is being refitted. They have yet to decide where it will be moored, although it will be in a port rather than at sea. A government source said the barge would have a deterrent effect on people crossing the channel illegally. They added that discussions were at an early stage and acknowledged that there were significant practical problems. Um, the barge is of a kind usually used for offshore construction projects and has basic facilities. It is unclear how the government would deal with matters such as the safety of those on board, although a government source said it's a row we're prepared to have. Now, notice that it's a, it's a row we're prepared to have, not, of course, we will take all measures necessary to make this safe. No, it might not be safe, but that's a row we're willing to have. 
Now, the government says that the plan to put asylum seekers into poor accommodation isn't just about deterrence. It's also about saving money. And at the moment, they are wasting a lot. Our lethargic attitude to actually processing asylum claims means we're spending £2.3 billion a year on hotels. But it's not actually um, British citizens who are losing out there. Most of that funds, most of that money comes from the foreign aid budget. Right, so we're not actually using the budget that we use for public services, the foreign age budget. And it's now the case that a third of that budget or £3.5 billion is being spent propping up the Tories' disastrous policies with regard to asylum seekers staying in the UK. Um, that figure um, comes from the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, who paint a picture of a Home Office pretty out of control. So their report says this, as of March 14th, 2023, the Home Office used 386 hotels around the UK to host asylum seekers, up from around 200 in October 2022. In addition, in October 2022, we were told the Home Office used 64 hotels to accommodate Afghan refugees, while the ICIA, so that's the organisation, had initially been given a different and larger figure for the average cost of hotel accommodation. We were informed in March 2022 by the Home Office that it amounted to £120 per person per night, that's including catering and other services, and that would be compared to £18 for longer-term accommodation in houses and flat. So that seems like a good idea, doesn't it? Why don't we change the accommodation, um, but not for barges, just for houses and flats. While the Home Office has recently started planning long-term solutions, the short-term nature of its response to date has contributed to the spiralling costs. This has been exacerbated by a large and growing backlog in processing asylum claims, which results in many more people entering Home Office provided accommodation than leaving. And longer stays in hotel accommodation for newly arrived asylum seekers. Now, that's a paragraph that suggests it's not the number of asylum seekers arriving in Britain that's wasting taxpayers' money, but rather the incompetence at the top of the Home Office, right? So we can easily house this many people if we just have some forward planning, but because the government's so desperate, oh, we can't possibly have forward planning, we can't possibly have long-term solutions here because then we couldn't have this constant 24-hour crisis, that's why this is costing money. It's not because we've got an extraordinary amount of asylum seekers arriving here, because as we've said on so many shows, we don't. Compared to comparable countries, we have a very small number of people arriving here, mainly because we're an island, right? Many more people arrive to Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and they seem to manage to handle it without having offshore barges or breaking international law. Um, Dahlia, what's your take on this? I mean, they seem happy to get these headlines. Yeah, look, I'm always quite reluctant to only talk about cost when it comes to the provisions that are made for asylum seekers. I think that if, you know, it, it will cost money to provide people seeking asylum with a dignified life. And I think that, and, you know, with a safety net, and I think that that's ultimately a good way of spending money. I think that if any, if anyone watching at home, if any of us were displaced for whatever reason or had to seek asylum for whatever reason, we would want to have money spent on our material security. We would want to be able to have dignified conditions that will cost money. So I think that I'm reluctant to kind of always, always make this about, um, about taxpayers' money. But the fact that the government are picking in many ways, the most expensive option, the most economically inefficient option, the path of most resistance shows that really the cruelty is the point. Um, you know, the government is, is deliberately 
redirecting resources away from producing a functional asylum system that can process and settle people as quickly as possible and help people get their lives together as soon as possible. They're deliberately rerouting resources away from that and towards these vivid spectacles of cruelty and a deliberate engineering of chaos. You know, we saw this at the Marston um, Detention Center where deliberate neglect was being engineered in order to create scenes of violence, to create scenes of outbreaks of, you know, illness, of outbreaks of, of disease. And for me, that is really what this is about. By creating this constant mismanagement and creating this spectacle of chaos and crisis, you essentially justify the further actions of the government. Uh, you know, I think that this is partly also um, the government responding to the fact that in recent years, particularly since 2019, the number of Brits that identify immigration as the most important issue to them, the number of Brits that identify it is, is actually falling. And so I think the creation of this spectacle of, of crisis and chaos when it comes to our immigration system is a way of trying to keep immigration in the headlines to keep it being that main thing that is driving voters to make it feel like a crisis to voters, because that is ultimately where the the conservative government uh, rely on for for their their power, because they know they can't win on the economy, they know they can't win on inflation, they know they can't win on public services, the things that actually really matter to British voters. And so they are constantly fermenting this sense of crisis when it comes to our immigration system um, to create spectacles of chaos to justify their further existence. Um, so I think that, that that is what is really evident to me by these really pie-in-the-sky, absurd, cartoonish uh, so-called solutions that the government is coming up to with, with respect to our deteriorating asylum system. And of course, the right-wing press in this country are very much happy to play ball if this is what the Tories want to lead on. And in fact, the creation of prison ships has been a long-running desire, in particular, of the Murdoch press. In fact, so much so that Ken Clark has said when he entered government as Justice Secretary, a specific demand was made to him by Rebecca Brooks for the government to purchase prison ships. Rebecca Brooks at the time was then Chief Executive of Murdoch's News International. And Ken Clark said, quote, she described herself as running the government now in partnership with David Cameron. So the claims were made by Ken Clark in 2017, in an interview with the Competition and Markets Authorities, referring to a conversation in 2010. These are the quotes from Ken Clark. I found myself having an extraordinary meeting with Rebecca, who was instructing me on criminal justice policy from now on, as I think she had instructed my predecessor, so far as I could see, judging from the numbers of people we had in prison and the growth of rather exotic sentences. She wanted me to buy prison ships because she did accept the capacity of prisons was getting rather strained, putting it mildly. She really was solemnly telling me that we had got to have prison ships because she had some more campaigns coming, which is one of her specialities. This was the, the chief executive of News International, Murdoch-owned press, telling the incoming justice secretary, you're going to have to implement prison ships because she planned to do, you know, one of these tabloid campaigns you have. You, know, you might remember sort of the Daily Mail did one against plastic bags. The Sun um, wanted to do one for prison ships. Um, well, 
we're now there, essentially. And the Sun do seem delighted. So this was their front page this morning. So big pic picture of that sort of prison on a barge. Oh, ship! Small boat arrivals to live on barges to cut 3.5 billion hotel bills. So they're very pleased. And you can see their exclusive illegal migrants plan. Um, so potentially they got told first. So for years now, ever since 2010, the Murdoch press has been desperate to do a front page on prison ships. And they've finally been given it by Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman. Um, Dahlia, uh, is, is this all about that front page headline? Do you, do you think we will see people on ships or did they just want that, that front page? I mean, I do think that it is all very much driven by spectacle, right? Um, ultimately, a lot of the plans that the Tories have announced are unworkable, are ineffective and are inefficient. Um, and you are completely right. I think a lot of it is about getting that narrative, getting getting that those particular narratives out there. What I think is really interesting is how it was. I found that the the comments by Ken Clark incredibly interesting there because what we see is essentially a newspaper editor believing, conducting themselves with the entitlement that they can have a direct line to British policy. And the reason that Rebecca Brooks was able to go into a meeting like that with Ken Clark is because she has had multiple meetings prior to that with other policymakers, and it has been seen as uncontroversial for her to be giving direct cues on policy. And in many cases, I would assume uh, her wish was their command. Um, and ultimately, we cannot talk about living in a democracy when politicians are getting their cues from a small number of unaccountable, opaque individuals. You know, many of us didn't know, even know who Rebecca Brooks was uh, until the phone hacking scandal. And yet it seems like she was directly shaping public policy. Policies are supposed to be hashed out by long consultation processes, processes that involve consulting with experts, consulting with stakeholders, with people who will be affected um, by those policies if they are executed. They are supposed to be done over a long period of time of public engagement. They are not supposed to be done, um, executed following, you know, cozy teas and dinners with newspaper editors. And to me as well, this really shows the power of the Murdoch press, because when New Labour came into power, it was just 3% of the British population that considered immigration to be one of the main issues that concerns them. Um, by 2016, that had gone up to 48%. And to me, that jump really shows that there is a consistent messaging agenda on behalf of a very small number of people who run our press and that they have a direct line to governments and that essentially there is this unholy alliance between the state and the media that directs the political compass of this country. And so I don't understand how you can consider this to be a democracy in any meaningful sense of the word when we are seeing that such a small number of people, some of whom are elected, many of whom are not, are the ones that are dictating the direction of our, of our political uh, culture. And in the case of immigration, the case of people like Rebecca Brooks, it is resulting in you know, us abandoning the basic tenets of international human rights law, namely the Refugee Convention, um, which allows people to apply for asylum in any country that they, that they choose. 
uh, and it's honestly it's it's honestly a a very depressing uh, story when it comes to not only migrants' rights in this country, but the very democratic fabric that we exist within. Yeah, and the, I mean, the whole testimony from Ken Clark is super interesting. He's giving evidence to the Competition Markets Authority. At the time, they were looking into whether Rupert Murdoch could take full control over Sky News. At the, at the time, he sort of had part control over Sky News. I think at the moment, he has no control over Sky News, but I, I, I might have got that slightly wrong. But that was the debate at the time in any case. And what he's suggesting is he thinks there was some pre-election deal between David Cameron and Rupert Murdoch and Rebecca Brooks because the Sun and the Murdoch press had switched from New Labour to the Tories for the first time in over a decade. And Ken Clark presumed that part of the deal was that Andy Coulson, who was the editor of the News of the World, would go and become um, David Cameron's chief press officer. And also, clearly, Rebecca Brooks had been given the idea that she would have the power to shape policy. Um, the impression Ken Clark gives in that you know, evidence session is he's saying, well, I was independent-minded enough not to completely defer um, to Rebecca Brooks. And I think the implication is that other ministers may have been less forthright or upstanding when it came to resisting pressure from the Murdoch press. Um, let's end on this theme by showing you a pretty bizarre clip from today. A lot of people are going to find the Home Office's plan to force asylum seekers onto a barge pretty disturbing. That's a fact that Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer brought up to her guest. He's former UKIPA, Stephen Wolfe, who's now refashioned himself as an expert on migration. It does have the look, we've got it up on the screen now, uh, what, what this uh, this vessel will look like. I mean, it, I mean you, it's not a cruise liner. Um, it, it does have a sort of a prison ship kind of look about it. There'll be a lot of people that will say, well, that's going to deter people if they think that's where they're going to end up. Is it appropriate accommodation? I mean, there'll be people, I mean, maybe they won't house families, but we know, uh, you know, that, that there will also be some migrant families coming. Is this an appropriate, safe place for people to be housed? I mean, what outdoor space have you got? How are you going to walk? I mean, uh, get, get, you know, get, get exercise. I mean, we, we can look after our own prisoners who've been convicted of serious crimes better than this, don't we? Well, perhaps we do, but I was re reviewing the Facts Centre on the UNHCR site this morning, and it makes it very clear that there is uh, no requirement or obligation under the, under the convention for people to be housed in houses or hotels. And in fact, when you look at the thousands of um, asylum seekers and displaced persons that the UNHCR is looking after across the globe, particularly places in Africa, you could look at Pakistan and to an extent I Iran, you see th really large tented communities out there. So in comparison to the tented communities in hot areas, this is a luxury for those who are fleeing torture. I mean, you could, you could apply that to any aspect of British society, right? You say, oh, our prisons are a little bit overcrowded. Well, if you, you look in a, 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 a war zone, prisoners of war don't tend to have such a, a nice digs for them to hang out in. I mean, he's literally pointing to places where there are humanitarian crises and saying, well, they live in tents there. Can't they live in tents here? It's like, well, well no, because we haven't just suffered a natural disaster right? We aren't a war zone. We're actually a very rich country. And so he shouldn't be taking inspiration from the refugee camps that you see in places that are, you know, that, that are suffering crises, right? It's like he, he watched the, the documentary about Shamima Begum and thinks, well, they live in tents in, in, in Syria. Why can't we just have everyone in tents in this country? Well, for one, this is quite a cold country. And two, we don't need to because we're very wealthy, right? The idea that now we're setting our standards for how people should live by looking at some of the poorest countries in the world and saying that will do here. I mean, by the way, you know, Iran isn't 
necessarily one of the poorest countries in the world. What he's naming, I mean, seems a little bit random to me. But clearly, the message he is sending is, well, they should be lucky. If they're living in tents, that's all good. We can do better than that. I mean, what did you think of that, Dahlia? What did you think of that comment? Well, for me, what I thought was really interesting, I mean, obviously, so this is Stephen Wolf, right? So he was, at some point, I believe, a seen to be a successor for Nigel Farage. He's essentially a UKIP politician, right? That That's what he is. Uh, the main reason I know who he is is because he got smacked by one of his fellow UKIP, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, so he's now founded this think tank, Centre for Migration and Economic Progress, which, first of all, the syntax of that is completely messed up. Um, but again, that's a conversation for another day. But the question to me is, who is the, who who is this guy? What is this think tank? Uh, so there are three people listed on this think tank, none of whom have got any expertise or evidence of having ever engaged in migration issues beyond as, you know, hot takey politicians. There's no expertise in academic issues of migration. There's no evidence that they have ever worked with migrants. It's literally just three people, two of whom um, just have history of, of working in the big city. One is a, as a lawyer for, for um, you know, big banks. The other one is an entrepreneur. And then you have another researcher who, again, has absolutely no research portfolio, let alone to do with migration. So this is an institution that has no obvious qualifications to be talking about migration from any perspective other than just simply having a political agenda around um, migration. And yet they are able to take up space in the media. Oh, of course, you know, it is on Julia Hartley Brewer's show. So, you know, it's not going to be, it, she's obviously going to go towards people who prop up her particular agenda. But essentially, these organizations, this kind of ecosystem of right-wing think tanks that have emerged over the past, I would say, 20 years, who are able to take up space and essentially subsidize the ability of right-wing people to take up space in the media to create and constantly repeat certain framings around the economy, around migration, and yet to be put forward as, you know, simply academic positions, you know, as people who have done the research and have come up with these conclusions. That is not the case. This is simply a some kind of, it's basically a shell company for, you know, a political campaign um, in order to achieve particular political goals that are not especially motivated by any kind of empirical research. So, you know, the, 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 the think tank that this reminded me of was Migration Watch, you know, which is, again, a very opaque, very, you know, non-transparent think tank that has been cited by mainstream media as a kind of independent, apolitical research institute and has been cited over and over and over again. I think I feel like there was one one study, you know, don't quote me on this, but there was one study that found that Migration Watch had been quoted in something like 600 stories in the BBC in one year, you know, which is is wild or at least one story a day in one year on the BBC. And yet there is no transparency about a who is funding, who is financing these think tanks. What is their political leaning? What are their political agendas? And what qualifies them to be considered as experts on these issues? And that has had a really sinister effect on shifting the Overton window, um, particularly around questions of migration, very much to the right. I think a lot of the um, shifts that we are seeing, the, uh, the shift rightwards 
on migration has been directly related to the growing influence of think tanks like Migration Watch. And I feel like this um, organization that, that Stephen Wolf is, has set up is basically trying to be a pound shop version of that. And so to me, that was really the interesting thing about this clip, because I was like, who is like, why is this guy being reframed as a migration expert when he's an anti-immigration politician, uh, anti-immigration campaigner? That's actually what he has cut his teeth doing. So I think it's interesting that that kind of rebrand, and we should always be really wary um, by this ecosystem of think tanks that whose funding is not transparent, whose political objectives are not transparent, but have been really shaping the Overton window and again, the political direction of this country and particularly over the past two decades. Good idea to look into this organisation, Dahlia. I feel like I should have done that when I was researching this this section, but I, uh, it's called the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. I've just Googled it. So you, you can go onto it and you say about us. They've got a, an, our wonderful team is Stephen Wolf with one other researcher she's called Claire Colgan. And this is a good one. Our advisory board. So an advisory board, you expect to see a number of people with you know various qualifications to make them a legitimate oversight board for this organisation. It's Stephen Wolf and one other person. So the staff is Stephen Wolf and one other person. The advisory board is Stephen Wolf and one other person. And then contributors, you've got Stephen Wolf and two other people. So this is, you know, th this basically just looks like an organisation that lets Stephen Wolf go on television and go on the radio and say, "I'm representing." You know, fair play to him. They've come up with a pretty legitimate sounding name, the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Yes, I trust what they have to say. Um, they sound like experts on migration. And, you know, I love economic prosperity. So why not listen to these people? But I think you're exactly right, Dahlia. This this does not seem um, like an organisation that we should necessarily be taking their word when it comes to, to migration or anything, in fact, because Stephen Wolfe is fundamentally a politician, right? He's an ex-politician. And it seems pretty odd to be introducing him as a migration expert. Let's go to our next story. The NHS is in a crisis like we've never seen before. After 13 years of austerity, you can no longer rely on an ambulance arriving in time to keep you alive. It's almost impossible to see a GP and millions are languishing on waiting lists. And it's no surprise that the public have noticed. The British Social Attitudes Survey has for the last 40 years done a survey on public satisfaction with the NHS. The King's Fund and Nuffield Trust have just released a new analysis of those findings. So here you can see the purple line tracks satisfaction in 2022. It hit an all-time low with less than 30% of people reporting that they were very or quite satisfied with the service. Compare that to 2010, the last year of a Labour government, when 70% of people were happy with the NHS. It's also a 7% fall in satisfaction in just one year. So this year it's 7% lower than it was the year before, the largest drop ever recorded. The blue line records dissatisfaction. Again, it hit an all-time high last year with more than half of respondents saying they were very or quite dissatisfied with the NHS. Why are people so turned off the NHS? Well, the survey reports this. The main reason people gave for being dissatisfied with the NHS was waiting times for GP and hospital appointments. So 69% gave that reason, followed by staff shortages, 55%, and a view that the government does not spend enough money on the NHS. So 50% said that. Of those who were satisfied with the NHS, the top reason was because NHS care is free at the point of use. 74% um, said that, followed by the quality of NHS care, 55%, and that it has a good range of services and treatments available, 49%. Half of those who are dissatisfied say it's because of staff shortages and half of those who are satisfied say it's because of the high quality of care. Together, 
that paints a familiar picture, one of overstretched and overworked NHS staff doing their best. But not everyone agrees with that take. Labour's West Streeting appeared on Julia Hartley Brewer's talk TV show when this happened. Labour's got a plan to deliver the biggest expansion of NHS staff in history, funded by abolishing the non-DOM tax status. Because unless the NHS has the staff it needs, we're not going to get the NHS has got, seen on time. The, look, the, I know about NHS funding not going up, commensurate with the extra need of people getting older over the over the, uh, the Cameron years. I completely, let's not go into all of that. But the reality is the, the NHS has got huge amounts of money. What we all can't work out is where the heck it's going. You say the staff are all wonderful. They're not all wonderful. They're not all doing well. A good job. I've, I've, I spent a lot of time in a hospital with an ageing relative uh, back in 2019. I can tell you there were a heck of a lot of staff doing absolutely bugger all. I mean, Jesus Christ. Uh, what gives her the right to say that there were absolutely loads of staff doing bugger all? Dahlia, what can you possibly say to that? Someone who, who thinks the problem with the NHS is there are loads of people doing bugger all. I don't know what hospital Julia Hartley Brewer has been in. I, anyone that I know, including myself, who has been in contact with the NHS, who has been in a hospital recently, knows that NHS staff are working under immense pressure and are doing the best that they can with, very, with shamefully little resource. I do think that there is one point to be made here, though, which is, you know, and later on in the clip, she kind of talks about, you know, uh, management and, you know, how much money is being spent on management and what she calls paper pushers. And in a sense, there is a grain of truth there. You know, the overall problem, the, the overriding issue of the NHS is absolutely lack of funding, for sure. But even within the meager funding that we are seeing being given to the NHS, so much of that is essentially going into privatization through the back door. So it's not going into, you know, built space, into, you know, medical equipment, into staffing, you know, and the staffing of, of nurses and doctors. It's not going into the people and things that actually provide healthcare. It's going into, you know, private sector management consultants who are essentially there to create problems that they can fix. And it's essentially a way of opening up the UK healthcare market, which has the potential to be for the private sector, an incredibly lucrative market. And because it can't be sold explicitly to the private sector, it is essentially there is still, they are still trying to manufacture the shifting of resources that should be going towards public service into the hands of private finance. You know, I think it's very interesting in this sense that as, you know, nurses have experienced an 8% real terms pay cut in the past 10 years, as junior doctors have seen their pay um, fall by 25% in real terms, between 2016 and 2019, the, um, the amount of money spent on management consultants, so not healthcare staff, you know, these aren't people who have any experience in providing healthcare. They're private consultants from, you know, Deloitte, KPMG, whatever. Spending on them between 2016 and 2019 tripled. So I think there's something to be said. It's not happening, this kind of, it's not happening in the wards. It's not happening for frontline staff. It's not happening for the people providing the medical care. But I think a lot of the dissatisfaction that is that we are seeing in the NHS is coming from the fact that even the meager resources that are happening, that are being given to, to the NHS, are being given to the private sector through the back door. And it's actually the parts of our healthcare system that are being 
slyly privatized that are creating a lot of the problems that are driving dissatisfaction. It's absolutely nothing to do um, with the healthcare staff who, frankly, I don't even understand how they are able to provide such a coherent and good service, the service that they are providing in the conditions um, that they have. But I do think that that question of, you know, when money is put into the NHS, where is it going? Is it going to healthcare providers? Is it going to people who are actually providing this service? Or is it going to, you know, all of the kind of private consultants that are circling around the dying body of our NHS like vultures, um, waiting for their turn, uh, waiting for the government to offer them a chunk? Uh, I think that's actually a, a fairly valid question. I don't think that's the question that Julia Hartley Brewer was ask, was asking because I think she'd be very happy to see um, the NHS given over to the private sector. Most people wouldn't be though. So there was one piece of good news from this survey and that's despite the problems in the NHS, 93% of respondents still support the idea of it being free to use. 83% are behind the principle that it should be available to everyone and 82% are in favour of it being primarily funded through taxation. And I think this is pretty important and relevant because you know, lots of people will have heard, I think the quite reasonable sort of argument, I think often ascribed to, to Noam Chomsky, that when a government wants to privatise something, what it does is it degrades the service and then hopes that that means people no longer support it. So they, they, they cut the funding of a service, make it really terrible. And people say, oh, there has to be dramatic change. There has to be radical change. Let's privatise it. Now, you do often hear actually that kind of line from people like Julie Hartley Brewer. But I think what this survey shows is that they have done a good job of making the service pretty crap. Um, but it hasn't had the desired effect of making the public particularly doubtful of the principles behind the NHS. So it seems like people want the NHS, they just want it to work better, um, which to me seems pretty reasonable. So I suppose that's something uh, to, to, to console ourselves with. Hopefully a new government will come in and the NHS will not just be the embodiment of decent principles, but actually work well as well. Moving on. Most of the media and most Labour MPs have been happy to go along with Keir Starmer's draconian decision to block Jeremy Corbyn from re-standing as a Labour MP. There are exceptions, though. This was Barry Gardner on Newsnight. What's happened today is that the NEC has taken away the right of Islington North constituency to choose the candidate that they've chosen. I don't know for how many years, but it's... it's, it's decades. Yeah, decades. And, and he's... We understand from Nick Watt, no, he nobody, hasn't yet decided, saying, Jeremy right. Corbyn, whether to run as an independent. Yeah. What would your advice be to him? He must not. Look... I support the Labour Party and I will always support the Labour candidate. And I would urge anybody who is thinking of leaving our party to stay because we need a party that has vibrant debate. We need a party where we disagree respectfully. We need a party that is an open social democratic party because if it's that, it will be stronger. We'll go on and we can win that election. But it's about putting a vision forward. And of course, that vision is stronger if we debate it. Keir Starmer's put forward the five missions. I want to get behind them. I want to ensure that we win the next election. And I want to do that on the basis of attacking the Tories, not attacking each other. He expects to wield too much control over the party, comparing Keir Starmer, say, with Tony Blair. Look, I, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, make any um, adverse comparisons. What I want is I want a party that is clear that rules must be obeyed, there are penalties if you don't, 
but then the process must be fair, it must be due process, and it must be followed. Because that way, people know that they're not under a climate of fear. They're not, they're not worried about whether some group within the party might think, oh, these people are not in, Lastly, in the best interest. Just of, to wind, to, just to an electoral machine. wind this up, because we need to go to Paris. But uh, is it not the case that if he had continued as a Labour Party candidate, Jeremy Corbyn would have been pursued by people throughout the campaign on this anti-Semitism issue, he would have refused to apologise as he has all the way up to now, and that would have been a distraction from the Labour victory you would wish to see. Well, th th that may be your view, and it may be many people's view, but the point is this, there are rules, they need to be followed, if they're broken, there need to be consequences. That's the way of doing things decently and fairly, and it has not been done in this case. It's really sad how radical that sounded, right? You've got an MP saying, actually, I think due process matters. And it's interesting that it's the MP who says due process matters that actually gets a harder interview. All the other MPs who go on and say, oh, yeah, of course, it was great to kick Corbyn out. You, you don't get them being really grilled by these hosts saying, I mean, what rule was followed here? Is, is this safe in a democracy to have a leader who can just stop people standing because he decides on a whim that it would be against the interest of the party to do so? Don't you have rules that should be followed? That would seem to me sort of the normal um, questioning from a journalist. I mean, obviously, in that situation, it's, it, it's fine. You often take the opposite opinion to the person you're interviewing. That's an interviewing style, fine. But I'm not seeing the same thing directed at the likes of Wes Treating and Ed Miliband when they say, oh, yeah, rules are rules, rules schmalls, you know, this guy shouldn't be standing. And then all the hosts are like, oh, yeah, of course, good, good. Oh, yeah, this is good. Could Keir Starmer go even further? I mean, that seems to me to be the tenor of coverage of this. Um, I said the media have mostly gone along with this, not all though, and this is not quite a defence of Corbyn, what we're going to show you now, but in terms of the mainstream media, Lewis Goodall is the only person, I think, to recognise Keir Starmer's behaviour has been questionable at best. Team Starmer's view of this is that they can convince the public, as you say, that the party has changed by using Corbyn and the left to every conceivable opportunity beat them with the biggest stick that they can. And this isn't, Corbyn is the most visible manifestation of this, but at every level of the party, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's easy to forget now the extent to which Starmer ran. I mean, I was in the, you know, in the room when he launched his campaign in Manchester back in 2020, and his whole appeal then was as, as a sort of bridging candidate, a more centrist part, candidate of the party within the Labour Party. So his line would be, let's not trash the last Labour government and let's not trash the last four years under Corbyn. Well, my word, we have moved so far from that in that time. The Labour left knew this was coming. I mean, I remember speaking to someone from the Labour left during that leadership campaign and saying to them, well, would Starmer be such like a bad outcome for you? You know, he signed up to all of these pledges, these Corbynite pledges. Uh, he's, you know, he's saying the right things as far as you're concerned. The mood music is pretty good, pretty conciliatory. And they were like, no, no, you don't understand. We'll be out. We'll be out straight away. They knew that this purge was coming. And if you look across the sort of hierarchy of the Labour Party, the different bits of the Labour Party, it has been purge by purge by purge, whether it's on the National Executive Committee itself, which used to be controlled by the left. Look at parliamentary selections which have gone on. In the 100 most winnable seats of the Labour Party, only two have been from the left. The Starmer leadership has exercised an iron grip on parliamentary selections. So this, in a way, the Corbyn stuff is the most visible manifestation of this, but there is no doubt that the Starmer leadership has been, in a way that is completely different, we've talked about before, John, to say how 
the Biden approach has been, which has been to embrace not only the sort of much of the ideology of the left, but many of the key figures. We had Bernie Sanders in this studio talking about exactly that. The Starmer approach has been to purge. And that is one of the reasons why it has generated such anger from so many parts um, of the left. That was good journalism, right? He was actually talking about what was going on. Now, it doesn't matter. He doesn't need to stand up and say, this is an outrage that Keir Starmer has done this. But to call a spade a spade, this is a purge. And also to say this is not inevitable, right? Joe Biden did a very different thing. I think the comparison between Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden is very important here. Hillary Clinton, when she beat Bernie Sanders, what she did was basically call all of Bernie Sanders supporters sexists and sort of say, this guy's an idiot, right? She lost. Joe Biden, when he beat Bernie Sanders, he was like, no, this guy's got loads of really good ideas. Let's come together and talk about hashing out some policy practices. And, and lo and behold, the Joe Biden presidency has been sort of more progressive than, say, Obama, for example, because Joe Biden didn't just rerun the Obama campaign. The, the Inflation Reduction Act does invest some serious money in, 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 in climate change, for example. Um, so he, he is a very different president to Obama, whereas it seems to me that Keir Starmer just wants to be Tony Blair. And to me, that seems, it seems risky electorally. It also suggests that this is not going to be a particularly, I mean, radical government would be being overly, um, I mean, it's not just that it won't be a radical government. It seems like it's not going to be a particularly progressive government at all because they've expunged the left from the party and sort of denied the possibility. They don't have sort of the option now to sort of say, we're going to, we're going to win with a big tent coalition of the left and the center. They are saying, no, we are a centrist party the left aren't going to be batting for them, right? So they have to go now for the right and the media. That's their electoral strategy, which to me doesn't suggest, um, you know, that we're going to be pleasantly surprised when they get into power, as some people have been with Joe Biden. Um, we're also beginning um, to see debates emerge within the Labour left as to how Jeremy Corbyn should respond to being barred. John Landsman is the founder and former chair of Momentum. He's penned this for Labour list. Barring Corbyn is wholly unjustified but I hope he won't stand as an independent. Now, in the text, um, he writes this, and this is on the decision to block Corbyn. So this is his take on Starmer's move. This is an act of factionally motivated victimization. Keir Starmer may believe that it will play well with a section of the electorate, but it will play badly with others. In a first-past-the-post election, the Labour Party must appeal to a broad spectrum of voters, and that requires a broad range of politicians. Jeremy Corbyn certainly does not appeal to everyone, but he appeals strongly to some, to, to many, in fact. He is a necessary and desirable part of Labour's coalition, so he's disagreeing with Keir Starmer. However, on how Corbyn should respond, he writes this. He could do as Tony Benn did, to retire from Parliament at the next election to devote more time to politics. As a Labour Party member, and unlike Tony Benn, as a former Labour leader, he would continue to be able to speak out on anything he chooses and would have far greater weight than any backbench independent MP lucky enough to be elected would ever have. I very much hope that he follows Tony Benn's course of action rather than standing as an independent against the Labour Party when we all want a Labour government. I imagine that is what every socialist campaign group MP would like to do since apart from any other consideration, they wish to remain Labour MPs. And then it says the alternative is probably that thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of Labour Party members will be expelled for supporting an independent parliamentary candidate in Islington North. That, of course, is what members of the faction that Keir Starmer has put in charge of running the Labour Party on his watch are hoping for. Now, I know John Lansman. I, I respect John Lansman. I think he's a thoughtful guy. But I think this is a pretty misleading article in a way, because the options it's presenting aren't the only options. And the options it is presenting, I don't think, are being presented particularly honestly. Tony Benn retired on his own terms, right? He wasn't kicked out of the party. He wasn't booted out of the party. He decided to retire. It, it was a decision he made. 
Jeremy Corbyn is being kicked out of the party, essentially, or being kicked out of the PLP. So the idea that you just respond to that by saying, oh, okay, well, fair enough, I'll just retire now. It's not going to be understood in the popular press that this is a guy who, you know, in his prime, a very thoughtful guy retired. They're going to be like, this guy was kicked out of parliament in disgrace. That's how everyone talks about Jeremy Corbyn, right? And so I, I, I can see why Jeremy Corbyn is going to be listened more to as an independent backbench MP because he can say, look, Keir Starmer didn't like me, but the electorate, they do, right? I have a democratic mandate to be here. You might think I'm disgraced, but my constituents clearly disagree. And to me, that would give the guy quite a big mandate to speak because he, he will have caused a massive upset. That will be a pretty impressive election result if he is to beat the Labour candidate. Whereas if he just says, I, I resign now respectfully. I mean, John Lansman also says he could run for the NEC. I mean, I, I wouldn't put any faith in the Labour Party not to find an excuse to expel him if he wins election to the NEC, right? It doesn't seem like there are any lengths they won't go to to get this guy out. And I do think that if you've been, you know, if you've been subject to such a huge character assassination in the press, then you've, you want to show that the press don't matter that much. You can beat the smear, as it were, right? So I, I think there is a strong argument for him to stand. I also, and I suppose this is where potentially I, I agree with John Landsman in that I don't think the whole socialist campaign group, so that's the left-wing Labour MP, should come out and say, we back Jeremy Corbyn in Islington North, because then they would be expelled from the Labour Party. And I think the left would have next less influence in the next election, because I don't think all 30 of them would get elected, right? So I, I don't think they should all endorse Jeremy Corbyn, but they don't need to. And the example here is Ken Livingston. So Ken Livingston was essentially um, barred from standing as a, well, he, he wasn't barred, in fact. So he, he ran to be London's Labour mayor, um, in 2000. He wasn't the choice of Tony Blair. He did win the vote among members and among trade unions, but Tony Blair sort of whipped MPs to vote against him. So he lost that internal election. Ken Livingston said, look, this is a stitch up by Tony Blair. I'm going to stand as an independent, but I don't want the express support of any Labour MPs or even any Labour members, because I don't want you guys to leave the Labour Party. I don't want you to get kicked out. I can do this on my own. Right? And obviously Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't have to do it on his own because there are enough people who've already left the Labour Party to campaign for him. So I think there is a Ken Livingston option, which is neither of what John Lansman has suggested. He seems to be suggesting he can retire like Tony Benn and sort of a, a very principled and be the sort of respected elder statesman, which I don't think is true, or he stands and completely spits the Labour Party. And I don't think that's true either, because I think there is this Ken Livingston option, which is, which is quite a positive one. Um, I, I want to go to a poll. This is favourability among Labour voters. Um, when it comes to Jeremy Corbyn. And as you can see here, of people who voted Labour in 2019, and over 50% of people in Islington North voted Labour in 2019, 43% have a favourable opinion of Jeremy Corbyn, 27% have an unfavourable opinion of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, again, that, that's not polling that suggests this guy would win the next general election if he were leader of the Labour Party, right? You need much higher support among Labour voters for that to happen, and you need higher support among some swing conservative voters as well. But if what you're trying to do is win a constituency where you already have massive name recognition and you're going to be competing with the Labour Party, not with the Conservatives, then to me, that seems like the kind of ratings which means he probably could beat the Labour Party in Islington North, right? I mean, presumably they're going to do some polling, I don't know. But you imagine that would be higher, that 43% favourability rating that he has among 29, 2019 sorry, Labour voters. I would imagine that's much higher in Islington North. You know, so... I think he's got a chance of winning and I, I wouldn't dissuade him from doing so. Let's talk about Paul O'Grady. Legendary comedian and broadcaster Paul O'Grady has died at the age of 67. 
He was best known for his iconic drag persona, Lily Savage, a chain-smoking, foul-mouthed sex worker with a heart of gold. O'Grady created Savage in 1978, basing her on the personalities of his female relatives. But he perfected her on London's drag circuit with Savage's solo show running at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern for eight years. In the early 90s, Savage hosted Channel 4's The Big Breakfast. Then, from 1999 to 2002, she helmed the primetime family show Blankety Blank, first on BBC One and then ITV. It's hard to imagine in an age of drag story time hysteria when we're suddenly all supposed to be terrified of, of, of drag queens. Now, I've spent all day watching Lily Savage clips. I recommend you do the same. There's endless joy to be had um, from typing in Lily Savage best bits on YouTube. I have chosen one for you, though. It's Lily Savage appearing on BBC's Parkinson. Barbara! Hey, sweetheart! Take what you like! Help yourself! Oh, come here, gorgeous! No tongs, no tongs! Thank you, darling. Now tell us about this comeback. The reason for it was. Comeback? The comeback. I hate that word. <laughs> it's return, return to the people out there in the dark who've never deserted me. Sorry about that, Michael. It was a bit of Norma Desmond <laughs> slipping. <laughs> I thought, you know, a barber, I'll tell you, the excesses of show business got the better of me. You know, when you find yourself yeah. in a skip at five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> with one of the basis rollers on your back, or a mini, you know what I mean? You think, Lily, it's time to call it a day, love. So I went back up to Liverpool for a bit. Right. And, and what uh, did you do there? Well, I worked for a friend of mine who's got an agency. <clears throat> Big Risa, her agency is. And uh, I was a sort of social consultant, really. And then. <laughs> Then there was all that business with Wayne Rooney, you know what I mean? And I thought... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know about that. Wayne Rooney? It was me, Michael, it was me. Yeah. <laughs> I woke up, I looked at this spotty forehead. <laughs> two inches of pubic hair, I thought, Lily, you're too old. Get out of the game. <laughs> now he's playing for Manchester. I know. Yes. 50 know quid, and it wasn't worth it, I believe you, <laughs> mate. <laughs> The poor lad got a rash. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know. Anything else you've been doing we should know about? <laughs> I've been doing lots. Well, then I decided, I thought, well, you've still got a womb, Lil. I thought, yes. you know. <laughs> Such a cheap audience in here tonight, isn't it? I'm really coming for a worm. Um, I thought, well, I'll carry another woman's eggs for them. <laughs> I don't mean I had a market stall, you know what I mean? No, no. no for know. lesbian couples yeah. who couldn't have children. I had 18. Yes. 18 what? Eight... Babies in oh. a period of three years. Oh. oh, I was prolific. What? I took my pelvic floor laminated. <laughs> I'm telling you. Barbara Windsor, who was in Stitches there, was a close friend of Paul and her husband was on TV this morning talking about how supportive Paul had been to Barbara when she was coming to the end of her life. And that compassion also applied to politics, shaped by his Birkenhead childhood and later his time as a care worker in London in the 1970s. O'Grady was outspoken in support of the working class and the marginalised. He even publicly backed the 2010 student fee protest, even when they got pretty spiky. And he hated the Tories. Here he is talking about George Osborne and the coalition government. Apologies here, we couldn't find a higher quality version of this video, but I promise it's worth it. Talking of nets, George Osborne, what do we think? Is it up or is it down? Do you know what? 
cartoon and have Ozzy Osbourne as Chancellor. <laughs> I tell you what, because at least with Ozzy, the only cuts made would be the effing and blinding from his speech, that's all. <laughs> Do you know what got my back up? Oh, those Tories whooping and hollering when they heard about the cuts. Did you see them? All in the background. Do you watch telly or politics, you lot? <laughs> but ain't X Factor, not I can interest it. <laughs> They were annoyed with it all. Yeah, you have sound up. It's got to scrap the pension. Yay! No more wheelchairs. Yay! <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> oh, sorry. Ooh. I do apologise for the language. That just fell out. <laughs> I bet when they were children, they laughed in Bambi when his mother got shot. I bet. <laughs> In the words of the old musical song, folks, it's the same, the old world over. It's the power, what gets the blame all together. It's the rich, what gets the pleasure. I know, a bleeding shame. I tell you what. <laughs> it wouldn't be the French. <laughs> Look at them now, the French kick off. If the coffee's cold, for God's sake. <laughs> We should take a leaf out of their book. Oh, yes. We should take to the streets. We should be vocal in our fight against oppression. We should let... Oh, shit. We should let them know that we are not taking these draconian cuts lightly. We should fight for the rights of the elderly, of the poor, of the sick. Of the little children's. Vive la Birkenhead! Vive la Revolution! What an absolute legend. You saw there also that sort of statuette of a, of a dog on the side. I've been very sort of pleased to see today all these pictures about how he was a dog lover and also a lover of bull breeds. I have an American bully, so I was, I was very... What, what was... This guy was perfect, essentially. Um... It, it, Paul O'Grady's passing was brought up at Prime Minister's Questions, where Dominic Raab was standing in for Rishi Sunak. And in his question, the Labour MP Chris Bryant talked about a performance by Lily Savage at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in the 1980s. Lily was performing at the height of the AIDS crisis in 1987, um, when police officers raided the pub, arrested her amongst others. Um, they were wearing rubber gloves because supposedly they're protecting themselves from contracting HIV, from touching gay men. Lily amazingly said at the time, um, oh, lads, you've come to do the washing up. That's great. Um, her alter ego, Paul O'Grady, campaigned acerbically and hilariously for elderly people, for care workers, um, against oppression of every kind. Isn't it time we in this country celebrated our naughty, hilarious drag queens and comics yeah. of every kind who yeah. inspire us to be a better and more generous nation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Your Honour. I totally agree with him. And uh, Paul Grayson was an uh, incredible comic, but he also... <laughs> But, but Lily, but Paula Grady, but Lily, but in terms of Lily Savage, also, I think some of that comedy broke glass ceilings and broke uh, boundaries in a way that certainly politicians would struggle to do. So I agree with that. I also think it shows how we need uh, greater, more rambunctious free speech, and we need to avoid the wokery and the limitations on comedy, which I'm afraid both of them would have had no time for. What a pathetic, graceless, classless response to someone dying. Standing up, 
you know, deputising for the Prime Minister, getting Paul O'Grady's name wrong and then using their passing as a cheap shot about woke comedy. Now, by the way, I mean, woke, I think, is a pretty anachronistic word to use here, but Paul O'Grady was very uncompromising in his support for things such as trans rights for, I mean, as we've, as, as we've talked about, the rights of the poor and the working class. These are things which would get called woke. So, I mean, I, I don't think he's a hero of woke comedy. I think talking about wokeness sort of in respect to Paul O'Grady is a little bit silly and anachronistic, but that was just such a grotesque response. Um, Dahlia, I don't want us to focus too much on Dominic Raab. I don't want us to get distracted. Um, so let's talk, you know, about Paul O'Grady, Lily Savage. What have you made of, the, of, of, of his passing? Yeah, I read a, a really beautiful tribute by Sean Fay in Dazed. And one thing that she pointed out that I think is so true is that the journey of Paul O'Grady, for, you know, of Lily Savage from you know, working class drag queen, you know, doing the kind of doing the drag queen beat, you know, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, all of these places. These were quite underground spaces at the time. They were marginalized spaces. That kind of trajectory from, you know, those working class roots to having a show on the BBC and not in any way compromising not only the politics of your work, but also the way in which you appear, you know, like, Lily Savage brought that kind of drag queen culture to the front to to the living rooms of British, you know, British households at a time when that wasn't really done. And that that uncompromisingness in terms of form and content, um, that kind of journey is unimaginable now. It's unimaginable that someone would be able to come from a marginalized cultural space from a, you know, a working class background and be able to uncompromisingly rise the ranks and get, you know, a primetime show uh, in the BBC. And I think that, you know, when we're grieving Lily Savage, I'm also kind of grieving the conditions that allowed her to exist in the way that she did and to be such an incredible uh, voice and also just to be someone that brought so much joy and laughter to, to so many people. Uh, and as for the disgusting ex exploitation of her of her death by um, uh, by Dominic Grab, Lily Savage and Paula Grady, they never punched down. They never punched down, and that's you know more than I can say for you know especially this recent generation of lazy, anemic, substanceless, anti woke quote unquote uh, comedians who spend their whole time. Uh, punching down and, you know, hashing out boring old stereotypes to get cheap laughs. Uh, so I don't even know why. And I and I hope that Lily Savage has like put a hex on Dominic Raab from, you know, wherever she is. I'm sure that she would be absolutely disgusted at the idea of um, a Tory politician pretending to be in any way on the same side um, as her because they have always been on opposing sides of these issues. And, you know, that that continues to be the case. The issues that get spoken about by someone like Paul O'Grady are different to what we might normally hear on mainstream media because they came from a working class background. I think also what the clips I've been watching today make me think is just the mainstream media was a lot more meritocratic back then because no one is as funny as Paul O'Grady on the television anymore. And, and, and so I think if we are increasingly getting most of our media class from sort of private school and then Oxbridge, you're just pulling from such a small pool, which not only has sort of a, a sort of minimal experience of real life that most people can relate to, but also they're just, you're not getting these complete stars, these people who can make you laugh in every sentence. Like, as I say, that, that clip I showed you from um, Parkinson, you, you can watch all of it and it's just 
everyone on the stage is just in stitches the whole time. Like there isn't no word misses a beat. And I just, I can't think of anyone who can do quite that um, at the moment. There are some people that get close, but I, I can't think of anyone that could do quite that. And I think that probably does say a lot about how the media has become more, more insular um, in recent years. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.